0: As we prepare to hear scripture read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy God, the prophet reminds us that all flesh is grass, and that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. We give you thanks for your holy word and ask that it may inspire and challenge us this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 through 25. A certain ruler asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good? "'No one is good but God alone. "'You know the commandments. "'You shall not commit adultery. "'You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in 2016, which I know seems like decades ago, the singer-songwriter Dolly Parton was on tour A reporter named Jad Abenrod went to her concert in New York City. He had grown up in Tennessee, which he calls Dolly's World, because Dolly Parton was everywhere. On billboards, singing through the radio, in television commercials. He had grown up with Dolly Parton, but it wasn't until he went to her concert in New York that he discovered her incredible ability to bring people together. Now remember, this was in the middle of the 2016 presidential election, which had revealed deep and ugly divisions between Americans. And yet, as Abenrod interviewed people at the concert, he kept hearing them describe attending her show as standing in an alternate vision of America than what was unfolding on TV. As one person put it, I remember just standing out in the lobby and people watching because it was the most diverse place I'd ever been. I was seeing a multiracial audience, people wearing cowboy hats and boots, people in drag, church ladies, lesbians holding hands, little girls who were there with their families, said another you had a whole audience of people whose philosophies were in opposition to each other, co-mingling, and everybody is polite to each other. Abenrod was so intrigued by Dolly Parton's ability to bring people together that he decided to dedicate an entire podcast to exploring how she appeals to so many different kinds of people. He discovered that in both her songs and her public appearances, She sings and speaks in ways that resist easy classification or interpretation, and this enables all kinds of people to find a point of entry into Dolly Parton's world, even people who normally don't agree on anything. Again and again in the Gospels, we witness the remarkable capacity Jesus has to connect with all different kinds of people. Yes, there are members of his society and of the religious and political institutions of his day that Jesus regularly offends, but he also has a way of attracting people from across cultural, religious, and socioeconomic divides. All kinds of people come to hear his teaching and preaching, to beg him for healing, and to ask him the questions gnawing at their souls. Today's story is one of these episodes. A man comes to Jesus with a question. Luke describes this man as a ruler who is very rich. So we know this is a man of power, wealth, and status. In spite of all this, the man is seeking something more. For he asks Jesus a question that reveals his longing for deeper meaning and purpose. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In response, Jesus offers the man clear instructions. He should keep the commandments given by God, the commandments that keep people living in harmony with God and with one another. Now, this man would have known that there are ten commandments, not just the five Jesus lists. But the ones Jesus lists are the commandments that apply to how people are to live with one another rather than the ones that relate to how we live with God. For this man of wealth and power and status, Jesus recommends focusing on his relationships with his fellow human beings. In a paper by the psychologist Paul Piff about social class and ethical behavior, Piff notes that research shows the rich are more likely than the poor to cut off other vehicles when driving, they are less likely to stop for pedestrians, and they are more likely to cheat in a game and to think of greed as good. But money itself is not to blame, Piff argues. Rather, it is the comfort money affords us—the independence, insularity, security, the illusion it gives us that we don't need other people. This is the very attitude Jesus advises the rich ruler to avoid— by focusing on the commandments that govern his relationships with others. Now, if the rich young ruler was looking for a list of things he could do, Jesus has given him just that. But apparently, this is not enough. For the ruler's response suggests he is looking for something more. I have kept all these since my youth, he says. In that case, Jesus responds, Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor. Then come and follow me. By any measure, this is an extraordinary ask. It is, perhaps, what the man was afraid might be required of him, what he knew deep down he would have to do in order to truly commit himself to God. He would have to find a way to let go of the wealth and power and status that defined him and offered him comfort and security. When he heard this, the text says, "...he became sad, for he was very rich." In a conversation with scholar Elizabeth Lynn on this passage, she imagined that the sadness the man feels is the sadness that comes when we ask a hard question, knowing deep down that we're not going to like the answer. This man who comes to Jesus longing for something more must have known that there is no easy answer to a question as big as how to gain eternal life. Nevertheless, he hopes Jesus can offer him a manageable task. Instead, Jesus tells him to let go of the one thing the man cannot imagine giving up, his wealth and power and status, the very things that define him. Cheryl Strayed is the author of the memoir, Wild, which tells the story of her journey hiking 1,500 miles along the Pacific Crest Trail, or the PCT. She went on this journey as a course correction of sorts. Since the death of her mother when Cheryl was 20, she had been on a self-destructive path that eroded her marriage and threatened her life. She desperately needed a change, And one day she came across a brochure about the PCT and thought, that's what I'll do. In her book, she describes the process of undergoing this journey. There was the first flip decision to do it, followed by the second more serious decision to actually do it, and then the long third beginning, composed of weeks of shopping and packing and preparing to do it. There was the quitting her job as a waitress and finalizing her divorce and selling almost everything she owned and saying goodbye to her friends and visiting her mother's grave one last time. There was the driving across the country from Minneapolis to Portland, and a few days later catching a flight to Los Angeles and a ride to the town of Mojave and another ride to the place where the trail crossed a highway. At which point, at long last, There was the actual doing it, followed by the grim realization of what it meant to do it, followed by the decision to quit doing it because doing it was absurd and pointless and ridiculously difficult and far more than she expected it would be. And then there was truly doing it. Most of us spend a lot of our lives just getting to the starting point of the journey of faith. And we do this without having any idea what it is really going to cost us. If we come to faith as children, it usually seems relatively benign, another part of our family's weekly routine, maybe even a rather boring part. Faith, we think, is more or less a guide for how to be a good person. But somewhere along the way, if this life of faith really begins to matter, we start asking some hard questions of the church, of Jesus himself, and of ourselves. Questions like, what is it? really mean to follow Jesus? To love God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength? What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? Will I have to change the way I live? The way I spend my time, my energy, my money? Will it change the relationships that are most important to me? we ask these hard questions, in part because, like the rich ruler, we long for deeper meaning and connection and purpose in our lives. And I suspect the answers we get, at least the ones Jesus offers in the Bible, will make us sad because Jesus makes incredible demands of those who choose to follow him. To leave family members without even saying goodbye, to walk away from the family business, to go into towns and homes of strangers and rely on them for food and shelter, to sell their possessions, to pick up their cross. This and nothing less, is what it means to be a disciple, to give up the very things we believe define us and to be defined instead by our identity as members of the family of God. The rich ruler in today's story isn't able to do this, not yet, It's just too much to ask. And so the conversation between him and Jesus stops. And who can blame him? When the answer we get to our deepest question is too much to take in, the easiest thing to do is to stop the conversation, to stop talking, to turn our backs, to walk away. But even though we might assume that's what happens here, we don't know for sure. The rich ruler doesn't say another word, but maybe he stays and listens. He listens while Jesus looks at him the way Jesus does with extraordinary compassion and mercy and love. He listens while Jesus simply observes how hard it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God because it is hard to give up what makes us comfortable and secure, especially to begin a journey with no map or clear destination. The rich ruler listens while the crowd cries out, then who can be saved? Because they know we may not all be rich, but we all have something we don't want to have to give up to follow Jesus. And he listens when Jesus says, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Their conversation might be cut short, but if the rich ruler stayed and listened, he might have heard just enough to stay on the journey, to keep following those commandments and keep thinking about what Jesus had said. And maybe, after he eventually found a way to take the next step on his journey, like Cheryl Strayed getting ready to hike the PCT, he would take the next step, and then the next step, and then the next. This week, we are facing an incredibly challenging moment in our country's history. No matter what you hoped the outcome of the election would be, and I am preaching this on Thursday afternoon, which means we still don't know the results, but no matter what you have been hoping for, the truth is this election, this whole election season has revealed a deep division in our nation, and what separates us will not be easily overcome. We have learned that we all have work to do, and that the work of healing our nation cannot be outsourced to any politician. As individuals and as a church, we must work to determine our next step to consider how we will use our resources of time and energy and wisdom and finances and faith to be a part of bridging this divide. If we imagine ourselves asking Jesus today in the manner of the rich ruler the question, what must I do, Jesus? What, what must we at First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia, do to serve God and serve our neighbors and make God's kingdom manifest here and now? I don't know for sure what Jesus' answer would be, but if we take the Bible as our guide, I have to think he would give us an answer that would make us sad because it will be hard to do. It will be an answer that demands more of us than we can imagine. And yet, like for the rich ruler, it will be the thing through which we will experience the joy of life in God's kingdom. I don't know where you are on your journey, I don't know what your next step is, but I do know that now is the time. We need to do the next hard thing, to take the next step. It won't be easy. It might just be as hard as a camel going through the eye of a needle, for it will mean setting aside the things that have defined us, and opening ourselves up to a whole new understanding of who and whose we are. And the only way we will be able to do that is if we do it together. If we tell each other about our journeys, if we offer each other support and accountability, if we keep reminding each other that God is with us And that this is the path of discipleship. It is hard and uncertain. It is dangerous and risky and demands incredible sacrifice. It is also the path to reconciliation and healing and joy and, yes, eternal life. And we do not walk this path alone, but with each other and with our God, for whom anything and everything is possible. Amen.